This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Hildman. On this week's episode, Orleans Parish District Attorney Jason Williams is on trial in federal court for tax fraud. The St. James Parish Council has rejected a proposal to ban solar farms. And another high school in the Orleans Public School District is under fire after graduating over half the class despite them being ineligible, echoing problems at the John F. Kennedy High School three years ago. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Josh Rosenberg. Hello, Josh. Hello. Education reporter Marta Jusen's here, too. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. All right, Nick, you're in a federal courthouse right now, the long-awaited trial of Orleans Parish DA Jason Williams, who faces charges of federal tax fraud, began this week. Give us a brief background on what the charges are and what's at stake. So the DA has been charged with with several counts of tax fraud. Um, He is accused of inflating business expenses um, by several hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to get out of paying about $200,000 in taxes over a five-year period. And then also he's charged with not filing uh, the necessary forms associated with cash payments over $10,000. So prosecutors uh, allege that him and uh, his uh, former law associated, uh, a former um, uh, lawyer who worked in his office, pressured their tax preparer to take these uh, bogus deductions in order to get out of paying taxes. Um, the indictment came down uh, in 2020, and this was while uh, DA Williams was still city council president, but he had announced his intention to run for DA and qualifying was just a, a few weeks away for that election. Um, the DA has argued that that these charges were politically motivated, basically just a political hit job, and he's blamed the former DA Leon Canizero um, for that. And Canizero ha- has denied it. He called, called Williams delusional, but Williams went ahead. He won election for DA. Canizero ended up not running, and these charges have sort of been pending. There's been a lot of back and forth. There's been some delays due to COVID and some some appeals. Uh, the original judge on the case, uh, Martin Feldman, unexpectedly died, you know, just, just several months ago. So the case had to be transferred. But uh, the trial began on Monday. And, and so that's why I'm here. OK. And at stake is his seat as DA. Yeah, it's very likely that if he's convicted of any of these 10 counts that he's charged with, um, he will need to step down as DA. There is some question about how that will work if, if he appeals a conviction and, and when exactly. But yes, if he's convicted of a felony, the, there's almost certainly he'll have to, to, to step down. Would he be sanctioned by the bar or would he lose his law license completely? What, what happens at, the, at that level? So after the initial conviction, the, the, dis, the Louisiana Attorney Disciplinary Board would send a letter to the uh, Louisiana Supreme Court to suspend his license pending an appeal. This is actually a little bit complicated, and I, I'm not 100% sure on, on what would happen, and I'm not sure that anyone's 100% sure on what would happen after the, the initial conviction. But if there's a final conviction and, and he uh, is, is sentenced, then he would certainly have to step down. Okay. In opening arguments on Tuesday, some of the facts seem pretty agreed upon by both sides of exactly what happened, but there's a different interpretation of what those facts mean. Can you explain that? 
Yeah, so I think both sides can agree that that improper tax returns were filed, that these these expenses, these business expenses were inflated and and DA Williams didn't have to pay as much in taxes as he should have. The dispute is over whether or not Williams and Burdett specifically instructed their tax preparer to take these uh, deductions and to do something illegal. Um, their tax preparer, Henry Timothy, has pled guilty himself to inflating his own personal business, uh, his own his own personal tax returns, and and has pled guilty to tax fraud. He is awaiting sentencing, so that's one element here. Is that you know Timothy has agreed to cooperate with the government in order for some leniency in his own sentencing. It's um, something that the jury can take into consideration when they're weighing the, the credibility of Timothy's testimony. Mm. But it's one of several ways in which the defense is, is kind of attacking Timothy's credibility. Um, in addition to, you know, filing his own fraudulent tax returns, uh, he would file, he's, he's filed tax returns for third parties that, that have been inflated in addition to Williams and Burdett's. And he listed himself as a certified public accountant on um, several invoices. He is not, in fact, a certified public accountant. And there have been several instances in which he is documented lying to federal investigators. So, you know, these are sorts of the, the things during cross-examination, which which happened primarily today, is that he that he was getting questioned about um, pretty extensively by defense attorneys. So I think that's going to be, you know, one of the big questions that the jury asked is, is you know, Timothy is saying that he was pressured by Burdett and Williams to to inflate their expenses. They are saying that they had, that they would turn over the year, their profit and loss statements to Timothy, and he would go ahead and take the deductions. Of course, they wanted to pay as little in Texas as possible, but they never told him to do anything illegal. Mm. Um, so effective cross-examination so far by the, by the defense attorneys. You know, I don't know what, the, I don't know what the jury's thinking. I, I think that they made it very clear that Timothy has a history of being dishonest in various ways. Mm. Um, and I, I think that if nothing else, that that was made very clear. And, you know, there's not a ton of evidence that that the government has shown so far that Williams or Burdett specifically told him to take illegal deductions aside from Timothy's own testimony. So, you know, they showed some text messages between Burdett and Timothy, but but nothing specifically where she said we need you to to take personal put personal expenses in our business expense uh, deductions and because we want to pay less, right? Um, you know, and Timothy said basically he only spoke to the DA uh, two or three times. Um, this was all done through Burdette. So one of the defense attorneys asked him directly, "Did, did DA Williams ever ask you to do anything illegal?" He said, "No, I didn't really speak speak to the to to Williams." So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we're talking on Thursday. Uh, what is happening today? What so far? Is it more of the accountant? So no, Timothy's testimony just ended before we broke for lunch. It is 1245 right now when we're recording. Um, so when we go back, I'm not positive who they're calling first. I know there's going to be some uh, special agents and, and people who worked on the investigation into the case who will be called Eventually, it's expected that, that Williams' ex-wife, Bridget Bartholomew, will be called, and a former lawyer at his office also, uh, Robert Hortzberg. Both of them have also pled guilty to their own tax fraud charges and appear to be cooperating with, 
with the government. Mm. Um, so there could be some similar dynamics to, to what we saw with Timothy. How many more days for the prosecution to make their case? I'm not sure what the timeline will be. It's expected that the, the trial as a whole will go uh, two to three weeks. So. All right, Nick. Well, thank you and try to get some lunch. Thank you. Talk to you guys soon. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crestel, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, and education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Charles Maldonado, editor at The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That means you can count on us for truth, fairness, and accuracy. But in order to do this work, we need to count on you. Please make a tax-deductible contribution to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Josh, our environmental reporter, there was a big vote last night. St. James Parish was the latest Louisiana locality. They were considering a moratorium on solar farms, but last night rejected that proposal. What happened and what, what's next? That's right. Uh, thank you for that introduction. So the provenance of, of this issue um, goes back to this one developer who's looking to build a about 4,000 uh, acre, I, I think the, the exact number is 3,900 acre solar farm within uh, the, the, the parish kind of downriver property. Anyway, um, there, there were some residents of the parish who apparently have raised concerns about the impact that that project might have on the community. So the parish president um, proposed this, this moratorium, which, which would essentially prevent uh, any developer from uh, coming forward and, and, and even applying to, to build these kinds of projects. Actually, this, this specific one, uh, the uh, planning commission voted down uh, in, in, in May anyway. But anyway, it, the kind of overarching storyline here is that solar is, is a brand new technology in these communities and these parishes. And essentially, they're, they're kind of grappling with it. What, is, what does this mean? How does this fit in with who we are, with what we do? Um, this is sugarcane property, sugarcane farmland primarily. Um, and, and so they're, 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 they're kind of, you know, grappling with or uh, being forced to address this issue. And in some ways, these projects are being proposed. So to make a long story just a, a little bit longer here, um, mm -hmm. the, the council voted uh, last night to, well, actually, they, they, they didn't vote. It was, um, there wasn't a council member to uh, support the motion. So it kind of just died on the vine. But yeah, there, there's, there's no moratorium on these um, projects uh, in, in this parish at this point. So this was someone's private land, 
And they were approached by this company with a proposal to build this almost 4,000 acre solar farm. Had they been simultaneously approached by a sugarcane producer? There, there, there are a couple primary owners on this property. It's not just one owner. Um, but the one owner who, who was present at the council meeting last night, you know, he's been in this community for, you know, I, I think is his, his whole life, as far as I know. And, and he's a sugarcane farmer. So that's, that's his business. And, and yeah, he was approached by this company uh, called D.E. Shaw Renewable Investments. And when they're looking to develop a project, they have, you know, uh, certain criteria that they're, that they're looking for. The, the land has to be flat enough. Um, you know, the, obviously sunlight is, uh, you know, paramount concern, the, the, the amount of sunlight that they get. And the, the, the one uh, criterion that maybe is, is the most important, though, is the proximity to uh, a substation because they have to transfer this energy and, right. and uh, the utility company energy is, is, is buying that. So that's kind of what they, they look for in their search. Okay. And Entergy has made a pledge to get to what percent of renewable by what date? Um, so Entergy has committed to achieving net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. And they had a contract in agreement with this company that was proposing the solar farm to, to supply them. Why did this moratorium even come up in the first place? What was the issue? So it's it's a great question. I'm I'm not sure that there's a really uh, simple answer for it that that I came across in my reporting. Um, it it sounds almost as if there were some residents raising concerns. Um, you know, uh, kind of in you know in an uh, ambient way, if if you will, and. Um, First of all, the moratorium would not have uh, conferred any more authority on, on, on the council in, in terms of their ability to approve or deny any of these kinds of projects right. on an individual basis. So it's, it's a good question about why this, why, why this um, kind of, you know, I don't want to say knee-jerk reaction, but why, why they felt the, the, the need to even propose this kind of moratorium. I think, frankly, I mean, just from you know, just opining for a moment. I, I, I think it might have a lot to do with the fact that this is you know fairly new technology for the parish, and and they, you know, they don't want to give away. Uh, maybe as they see, they don't want to um, give away this land, even though it's privately owned. That they might have some uh, ambition to develop in some way, residentially or commercially, at some point. Mm. Um, there, there, there are also some concerns raised about what impact the um, uh, decreased amount of sugarcane crop would have on some of the mills that operate in the region um, if, if those mills wouldn't have enough uh, raw material to do what they mm. do, and, and that might have downstream effects on employment. So, yeah, you know, kind of these, you know, nascent, not, ex not necessarily like documented concerns necessarily, but these kind of, you know, uh, you know, I, I reflective of like a cautionary approach, let's say to right. something new. 
Okay. You pointed out a really important, I think, piece of it all, which was that regardless of whether the moratorium had been voted in or not, it, it might not have had any impact at all on this particular project or other projects because the council could still say yes. Absolutely. The council could, um, you know, without this moratorium, the, the council has every right in the world to say yes or no to each and every project. There aren't going to be surprise projects in, in the parish that the council doesn't know about. You know, it, it has to go through through them. Um, so this moratorium, you know, I've, I've, I've heard it described as by, by the people who are in favor of it um, as essentially just having a chilling effect on teacher de- development and, and kind of unfairly singling out this green technology in a parish where there's, there, there's a whole lot of, let's say, non-green technology, you right. know, a lot of petrochemical facilities lot of heavy right. industry, um, all through, you know, mostly upriver, but yeah. And what did proponents of so- solar development have to say about this? So um, they're, they're excited. The developer, D.E. Shaw, also known as, as Desri, you know, they're excited to be, you know, in the state they already have a, a a much smaller footprint in the parish. It's a 200-acre farm, uh, solar farm. I, I think they, it produces uh, 20 megawatts. But you know, they're they're saying that hey, th- this is going to be uh, a source of um, you know green energy, and not only is that great for the environment, but it's also uh, it's going to have a positive Im- impact on people's pocketbooks with the the price of of, of energy. Sure, this is no secret to our uh, readers and, and and listeners, but the price of energy is is, is you know skyrocketing. Uh, Entergy's um, portfolio, I, I believe it's about sixty percent is is um, derived from natural gas. And when the prices for natural gas are that high, to to hear them say they don't have a lot of flexibility in what they can charge people because you know they're um, a- attached to to that. Um, pricing, but with this renewable um, diversification could lower prices for people. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that that's kind of the, the the way that they're framing this or the way that they like to frame it. Okay. Well, and we're well aware their nuclear plant, Grand Gulf, has been, you know, offline for quite a while, which is yes. right. Our council's looking into, um, has put in, you know, for federal inquiries, it's just another piece of that, that package that's making those costs so high and, and what does make the solar piece, you know, more appealing, especially for ratepayers. I'm going to really kind of dive into some numbers that you just said for a second, Joshua, you, you said 20, they have a small project right now, this, this outfit, uh, 20 acre, 200 acres rather that, that produce about 20 megawatts. You thought, can, can we extrapolate then that a 4,000 acre plot project would create about 400 megawatts. Is that fair? I think it comes in a little bit lower. I, I think those, so, so as far as I understand, they're actually, um, this, this 3,900, uh, proposed project would be con- comprised of two separate entities, if, if, if you will. Um, and together those would, um, produce about 300 megawatts, okay. I believe. All right. Yeah. But they're all, they're doing right now 
a similar, a, a much smaller footprint um, of 20 megawatts. What kind yeah. of impact would 300 megawatts have on Entergy's goal of achieving renewable energy production? It's a great question. I, I, I talked with um, this professor over at, at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette to, to kind of get a better sense of the system as a whole, you know, from, from a kind of universal perspective. I think Entergy's entire network generates 24,000 megawatts, um, but their network extends into four separate states, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas, if, if, if someone wants to correct me on that. Um, I think that's right. And, and this professor was saying that in his estimation from what he sees, over the next 10 years, kind of the um, maximum amount of, of solar development in the state of, of Louisiana would be about seven gigawatts or 7,000 megawatts. And to do that, um, there would need to be about, uh, th there would need to be projects occupying about 49,000 acres of farmland. Um, and there are about 8 million acres of farmland in the state. So, you know, that's kind of where things are going, perhaps. And, you know, 49,000 out of 8 million probably, you know, is, is not that much on an aggregate scale. But to be fair, if, if you were in a community where this is brand new and, and this might be coming down the pike, right. you might feel a little differently if it's right across the street from you. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks for keeping an eye on it for it for us and explaining it so well. Absolutely. All right. Marta, I'm sad to say we seem to be a little bit of a um, Groundhog Day scenario here with uh, Einstein Charter's Sarah T. Reed High. Last month, NOLA Public Schools sent a warning letter to that school, to the Einstein Charter Schools Network, about a graduation problem with this year's senior class. Can you explain what happened? Yeah, so what we learned um, from that letter was that more than half of their senior class, which is about, I believe, 85 students-ish, um, had been ineligible to walk across you know, the stage and get their diplomas in their May ceremony um, when they did. And that was due to a, a number of factors. Um, students who had incorrectly, or who had taken incorrectly supervised online courses. The district said that the senior class didn't have a math teacher for the entire um, year for the students. And then other issues, the state offers something called credit recovery, should you fail a class here. And, you know, you have to get a kind of a template or a prescription of how you're going to make up the credit. And a lot of these um, issues sounded like they just weren't even telling students how to properly make it up. And it's um, also just, you know, surprising that the students didn't know that in part seems to be due to record keeping problems. Um, in part, them not keeping records in their own school internal system for the year, and also them not uploading those uh, grades transcripts um, at the end of the year before graduation to the state system. Yeah, so the sort of clumsy allusion to Groundhog Day is re really referring to John F. Kennedy High School a few years back, which I think you broke that story. What, what happened there? How is this the same and how is it different? Yes, so we did break that story in 2019. There was a, um, there was a 
grader who had left the school and came forward um, with allegations of grade changing at Kennedy. What this investigation eventually led to, you know, they, Kennedy did an internal investigation, the district did one, and the state did one. And what those turned up eventually was that there were grade changes made at the school and that those were improper, but it also turned up a, a whole lot of other concerns that are kind of like what we're seeing at Einstein here. You know, high school seniors who walked across the stage but had never taken the appropriate courses. They just weren't tracked. Students who also took online makeup courses improperly because they weren't properly supervised. Um, and so just a lot of failure in record keeping really at the administrative level. We, we have no allegations or evidence of grade change at Einstein, but a, kind of a lot of that, these paperwork issues appear to be the same. Okay, and after the reporting um, that you broke on the JFK story, there were some changes implemented at the district level. Can you can you explain what those changes were and where this system failed? Right. And so after the JFK story, I mean, the CEO stepped down, a few administrators stepped down from that school. Um, the district threatened to revoke its charter and the, the charter group eventually turned in that charter. Um, and what the district also did in addition to that was make a number of changes. Um, and kind of what you're seeing here is, you know, we have a, a decentralized system of independent charter schools who are you know, allowed to have this independence and not have the district come in and monitor them or their students' grade books um, at any level because that's kind of, you know, the, that's the give and take of the charter system is they have this vast independence so long as they're being, providing good results and uh, giving kids the education they deserve. And so when that had clearly all broken down at Kennedy, some of the things that the district put into place uh, were kind of a new like graduation review rubric for each student to ensure that they were taking and could take the proper courses to be able to qualify for state diplomas. Um, they also started doing audits of the courses that each high school was offering so they could ensure that, you know, schools were indeed offering algebra, which is going to be required for a diploma. They also hired a new assistant director of high schools to kind of keep track of all of that work. I'm astounded at the, at the series of corrections that were in place. It begs the question, but keep going. Well, right. So then what we saw here, we went see the same problem again. We go back to the district where we say, you guys put all these reforms in place. What the heck happened? And what they told us is that that the duties that had fallen to that newly hired person, that assistant director of high schools, had actually fallen to a different individual uh, last fall, which to us means that that assistant director position is no longer filled. Uh, un unclear why that is. And that, you know, in addition to that person doing two jobs, um, we also had Hurricane Ida, which disrupted, disrupted some of the, that record keeping and record review process um, at the district level. Still, I think that just, it, it begs many more questions about what all is still taking place from those reforms that we saw earlier, and how thorough they are. And this particular instance of students walking when they were ineligible didn't even make it to the district office until three days after the graduation ceremony. And even then, it was only because the Einstein board told them about it. They, had, they didn't become aware through all of these systems that had been in place to, to prevent things from this like this from happening. Right, which so that also leads us to our next question, which is why why did the board have that question? Who what prompted them to have that question of their you know students' eligibility, which is something we're hoping to get in here in the near future. Also worth noting that um, the CEO of Einstein has uh, since departed, was uh, terminated by the board. There was also another big incident at the school regarding mandatory reporting. That's when uh, 
if anything is suspected, incident with a, a student happens, it needs to be reported immediately to DCFS and to police. And that apparently didn't happen in a timely manner. So, you know, that school has had two big warnings recently. Their CEO since departed, um, you know, we're seeing kind of similar, similar turnover, although we don't know exactly the reason she left. They would not elaborate on that. Over half of the class were ineligible to graduate. What happened to the kids? In those weeks following uh, the graduation ceremony, uh, many of the students were able to make up those credit shortcomings, according to the district, um, either with makeup tests or by makeup, um, you know, course offerings or credit recovery plans. And then as of close to the end of June, they said all but one student had made up for those and was eligible for a state diploma. So, you know, I guess that leads us to, to ask, you know, how big were these issues? Was it simply record keeping problems or, you know, were there were there bigger issues with what classes students were taking or were not being able to take that led them to be ineligible? Right. And the downstream effect or the I guess the younger kids, you know, what, what how has this impacted the junior class, the upcoming seniors, the, the sophomores who are going to be juniors? Where all did this how do all does this affect them and, and what what their standing may be as they're entering a critical year? Absolutely. And the district said they were going to complete an audit on all those students by July 8th. We've requested that audit. We've been told it's not available. So not exactly sure if they're still performing that or if it um, it had been scrapped for some reason. Um, but that's certainly something that we want to know. And I'm sure that's something all the parents of Einstein High School students want to know. Right. OK. All right, Marta, thank you for your coverage on this. Thank you. OK, you all have a good week. Thank you. OK, have a good one. Bye. And an update on another important story in New Orleans. The city council today approved an ordinance allowing police to use facial recognition technology when investigating about 40 different crimes, effectively reversing a ban on the technology passed last year. The changes will also allow them to use cell site simulators, which can track nearby cell phones to find serious fugitives and missing juveniles. Critics argue both technologies can compromise privacy. Council members had offered two amendments, one of which expanded the allowable uses and was ultimately approved in a four to two vote. The mayor praised the ordinance while three of seven council members criticized it. The Lens will continue its reporting on surveillance issues in the city. You can read all of our coverage at thelensnola.org. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Krastel, Josh Rosenberg, and Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.